0: We're going to read this morning in John chapter 10, the first verse to the 18th verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, But they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture.'" The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them he flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep i am the good shepherd and i know my own and my own know me even as the father knows me and i know the father and i lay down my life for the sheep i have other sheep which are not of this fold I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father." Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we turn our attention to these holy words of, your, of our Lord and your Son, we pray that your name would be hallowed and honored, that you would open our eyes and expand our horizons And help us to see this morning afresh or anew the beauty of who you are, Lord. Father, please speak to us as your word is preached. Please communicate in that way that only you can and no human being can. Open our hearts and give us ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage us this morning through your word and bring glory and honor to your name. And help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most pervasive and persistent comparisons that the Bible uses to describe human beings is one that we humans typically don't care to embrace. The comparison of human beings to sheep. True or false? Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, human beings are, com- are frequently compared to sheep. True or false? That's true. And to be sure, there are other things, noble things, that human beings are compared to as well, such as worms and vipers, right? Actually, humans have the distinct honor of being compared to God, don't we? Being made in his image. That is a distinct honor, but nevertheless, one of the most common and memorable comparisons in the Bible of human beings is to sheep, and we tend to not like it. And why do we tend to not like being compared to sheep? Well, sheep are weak. When you, when you think of strong animals, you don't think of sheep, right? Sheep are helpless, directionless. They're utterly dependent upon a shepherd, they cannot survive without a shepherd. If you put a sheep in the wild uh, and you expect that sheep to know what to do and know where to go, it's not going to happen. Now, If you put a leopard in the wild, right, that leopard will probably be able to carve a living out for itself. Right. If you put a sheep in the wild, another animal is going to carve a living out of, out of that sheep, right? We prefer strong, self-sufficient, independent We prefer to make our own way. I don't need somebody to tell me what to do and to show me the way and to lead me. I prefer to figure it out on my own, to lead myself, to choose my own adventure, right? Mm -hmm. Being compared to a sheep is a sting to our pride, but the true fact is, according to the Bible, and it is just a true fact if you're sensitive to reality, we really are like sheep, aren't we? Human beings really are weak. We really are helpless. We really need direction We really need a shepherd. Now, I'm not saying in every area. I'm not saying, like, you know, if you bring it to the level of uh, putting gas in your car, you know, you're going to need someone to do that for you because you're so weak you can't do it. But you got to lift your eyes to see ultimate reality. We truly are weak, and we don't know what we're doing here in life, do we? And we can't save ourselves, and we can't help ourselves, and we're directionless. We truly do need a shepherd in this life. How many of you have felt that about yourself? Have you ever felt weak and helpless? Have you ever felt how much you need a shepherd and a guide and a leader and a savior? Now, for those who are ignorant of how helpless they are, or for those who just want to be strong, the thought of needing a shepherd is distasteful. But for those of us who know we're weak and helpless, the thought of God being our shepherd is very reassuring and delightful, isn't it? How many of you want the Almighty God to be your shepherd That is, I will take care of you. I will lead you. I will help you. I will guide you. I will care for you. I will provide for you because you don't know what you're doing. I know I don't, Lord. Guide me. Lead me. That's the biblical mindset, and that's the wonderful truth that God is a shepherd. The fact that the Bible tells us that we are like sheep is not to shame us or to mock us, but it's for our good because that is the truth. And here's the other thing. When we understand, brothers and sisters, that we are like sheep, when we embrace that comparison, then we're enabled to see what is perhaps the greatest comparison of all in the whole Bible, and that is the comparison of God to a shepherd. See, if you don't think you're a sheep, then you're going to miss the greatest comparison of all, or perhaps what is the greatest comparison. God is the good shepherd. It's a well-known fact of Christian history that in the first three centuries of, Christian, uh, of Christianity, the most popular and common theme in Christian art was not the cross, nor was it the virgin with her child, but the most popular and common theme in Christian art for the first three centuries was the good shepherd was the image of the good shepherd actually with the sheep upon the shoulders and you'll find this in churches on the church walls or on floors or ceilings you'll find this in christian homes that they've dug up and most most uh, pervasively you'll find this image of the good shepherd on christian tombstones and tombs in, in christian cemeteries of the first three centuries that is when a christian was buried the families, or they themselves, wanted to be buried with, this, with the picture or the image of the good shepherd on the, on the tombstone. Why? Well, first of all, that image of the shepherd carrying the sheep is one that is so comforting, isn't it? Here's a helpless weak sheep and a shepherd that knows what he's doing, and he's totally taking care of you. He's even put you on his shoulders. It evokes, brothers and sisters, the essence of the message of Christianity. You and I are totally lost, totally helpless, in total trouble, and God came and looked for us and put us on his shoulders and carried us to safety. That's the, that captures the essence, right? It shows his compassion, his strength, our weakness, his search for us, his rescue. So it's a beautiful picture. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now we have in this passage that we read, the third and the fourth I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And previously we've seen the first one uh, as I am the bread of life. And the second one that Jesus said is I am the light of the world. And in this this chapter he, he gives us the third and the fourth, which is I am the door of the sheep, which we'll look at this morning, and I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep and I am the good shepherd. How is Jesus both the door and the shepherd that goes through that door? The commentator William Hendrickson writes, so great is Jesus, and see if you can relate to this, so great is Jesus that his significance can never be fully expressed. No symbol taken by itself can do justice to his fullness. So we have to use all these, how is he bred and light, and a door, and a shepherd, and the resurrection? Well, because his fullness can't be expressed in just one symbol. True? And it bears repeating, and I've said this every time we've looked at the I Am statements, but when the reader reads this I Am statement, John does not want the reader to read the I Am statement and to believe that Jesus is the bread of life or the light of the world or the door or the good shepherd merely because he says it and that's good you should believe i mean it is scripture and so we should say jesus says he's the good shepherd so i do believe he's the good shepherd but john wants us not merely to believe because he says it but when he reads that he wants our hearts to agree and approve of that saying and say amen jesus is the good shepherd well said i can testify i can attest that he is a good shepherd to me can you can you as a christian say that this chapter has been called the Psalm 23rd, the 23rd Psalm of the New Testament," because it's all about how Jesus is for us our shepherd, and as believers, the Lord is our shepherd and we shall not be in want. And Jesus shows us in this chapter that He knows us intimately, He knows you intimately, He leads us rightfully, He cares for us to the uttermost. And I hope we'll see that by the end of this sermon. And he provides for us lavishly, and not stingy. he's not stingy in how he provides for us. But this chapter also highlights the very real existence, friends, of false shepherds and strangers, hostile strangers who come to steal and kill and destroy. And this lesson is not one that's lost its relevance through time, but even today we need to hear it again. You and I need to hear it again, that there are false shepherds and strangers who seek to steal and kill and destroy you and your friends and your family members and we need to be aware of them and know how to detect them jesus's purpose in this teaching is both to warn us about those false shepherds but also to encourage us and to comfort us that he is the good shepherd and I think primarily Jesus wants to comfort us that he is the good shepherd and he shares about these false shepherds so we can contrast himself with them and he says I'm not like those hirelings I am the good shepherd unlike them I care for the sheep so we're going to look at this this, uh, this passage in three sections first of all we'll talk about how Jesus is the door of the sheep and then secondly how Jesus is the good shepherd And then thirdly, we'll finish with a short reflection on God the Father and the death of Christ. God the Father and the death of Christ. So first of all, how is Jesus the door of the sheep? This is what he says about himself. I am the door of the sheep. What does he mean? Well, the words that we encounter here in the 10th chapter continue uninterrupted from the 9th chapter. The context of this teaching is still the healing of the man who was born blind. And in the last chapter, Jesus just revealed himself to this man, and the man bowed down and worshipped him. And the Pharisees were watching this, and Jesus said, it was for judgment I came into this world, so that those who are blind might see, and those who see might become blind. And the Pharisees said, are we blind too? And he said, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin, but since you say you see, then your sin remains and your guilt remains. And he just continues right on to share with them this lesson about the good shepherd, false shepherds, strangers, hirelings. It's all connected with that context. Now, if you look in the scripture here, verse 1 through 5, Jesus, without explaining or elaborating, describes a characteristic Middle Eastern pastoral scene here. And I have no idea what that is, except what these commentators who know what they're talking about have told me. (laughs) So, uh, based upon those who have lived in the Middle East, and who understand shepherding, they say, you know, what he describes here in the first five verses, without explaining and elaborating, is just a common Middle Eastern shepherd scene. It's a morning scene, actually. So in the morning, the sheep are still in the sheepfold, which is an enclosure they're in for the night, usually a stone-walled enclosure. And often, a multitude of flocks go into one enclosure. So it's not just one flock, but many shepherds would bring their flocks and put them into one enclosure. And that way, all the shepherds wouldn't have to stay out at night. So they would just have to have one person at the door, and everyone else can go for the night. But in the morning, the shepherds would come to the enclosure. The doorkeeper would recognize the shepherds. And the shepherds, it says here... Uh, would call their sheep and since there's multiple flocks the, the interesting thing about it is the sheep even though they're all mixed together would recognize their shepherd's voice and he'd call them out of the flock and the, the sheep that belonged to that shepherd would leave the fold and he would lead them out into the pasture for the day and he'd take them to where he decided they're going to go and so it really is a beautiful picture showing um the the intimacy and the knowledge of the shepherd with his own sheep and the sheep with his shepherd, that they won't follow a stranger. And that when the shepherd comes to get the sheep, he doesn't have to climb over the wall. He just goes to the doorkeeper. Doorkeeper recognizes them, goes through the door, and calls them out. If anyone is there and they shouldn't be, and they want the sheep and they have no right to it, they're not going to go to the door. They're going to jump in around the other side and steal the sheep that way. So that's the scene that Jesus paints It's standard operation, but here he tells us that occasionally someone who's not known by the doorkeeper or the sheep comes, a thief, in order to steal. And since he's unknown, he does not go through the door. The commentator Marcus Dodd rightly comments, the thief's method of entrance, being illegitimate, declares that he has no right to the sheep. So the fact that he enters not by the door just shows he doesn't have a right to the sheep at all. And if you look in verse 6, Jesus doesn't explain what he's getting at. He just shares this scene, and we see in verse 6 that the people who were hearing him didn't even know what really what he was getting at. Okay, we hear you, Jesus. Yep, we know what, that's, what that is. But they didn't really connect the dots and see what he was talking about. And so Jesus proceeds to elaborate in verse 7 through 10. I am the door of the sheep. Now in a moment, Jesus will focus on himself as the shepherd, and that will have application to this picture that he's painted. But what initially concerns Jesus, what he wants to show first, is that he is the door by which the sheep are accessed, and by which the sheep access pasture and so it goes both ways he is the door by which any person any shepherd who's going to access the sheep must come through and he is also the door by which the sheep must go through if they're going to have pasture and you see this in verse 9 i am the door if anyone enters through me he will be saved and will go in and out and have pasture so he's the door for the sheep but he's also the door for the shepherd to get to the sheep In other words, people will never find eternal life unless they go through Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's basically what he's teaching here about you and I. We have to go through Christ to have this life abundant that he provides. And no person has the right to lead other people Nor can they lead other people to life unless they themselves come to them through Christ in the name of the true Christ in order to lead them through Christ to eternal life. No person has the right to approach the sheep in any other way. And when someone does not come to the people to lead them through Jesus Christ, that person is illegitimate. And Jesus is saying here, look, if someone comes to lead you and they didn't come by me, through me, to bring you through me, they come to harm you. True? Now what if they look really nice though? What if they sound nice? What if they don't come across like they want to harm me? right? What if they come across with all these promises of helping me and taking care of me? What if they seem genuine about it, but they don't come in the name of the true Jesus, preaching Jesus, according to Jesus, what are we to think of that person? Does his niceness create an exception? Does the sincerity of a teacher create an exception if he's not preaching Christ? Well, he's not here to harm me. No. And so, friends, we need to let this lesson that Jesus is giving us here sink down deep. Anybody who comes to lead people and say, follow me to eternal life, who does not come by Christ, through Christ, is there to harm you. So who are these thieves? They're false teachers, they're false prophets, they're false Christs, who are not preaching Christ and leading people through Christ. In verse 8, Jesus makes this statement, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Now when he says all that came before me, he's not referring to Moses. He's not referring to the prophets or John the Baptist. They, they came before Jesus. But I think what he's referring here specifically to is to f- specifically false messiahs or anybody who claims what Jesus ultimately claims. That is, anyone who claims to bring the final revelation and the, and the way to blessing and yet they don't come by jesus or in the name of christ so if anyone comes and says i have the final word from god i have the final the way that to to receive eternal life and blessing and they don't come through christ they're one of these thieves and robbers and the true people of god jesus says do do not recognize or listen to them so the true people of god they can call out to them all day hey come follow me and the true people of god will not follow them others may follow them But the true people of God don't. Why? Because they know the voice of God. They know the voice of truth. And they recognize in these teachers, you know, you're not speaking the truth. You're not preaching Christ. You're not preaching the gospel. You're not upholding the righteousness of God. You're not proclaiming to me the way of salvation through Christ and through grace and through faith so we don't recognize the truth what you're speaking here is lies I think of a mother who might tell her child my daughter in this world there are people who and there's there's people in this world that would come and want to kidnap you they want to take you away because they're evil and sometimes they'll come to you this is something that they do they'll come and they'll say hey so-and-so, jump into this. Jump into the car. Your parents sent me, right? Your parents told me to come get you after school. They told, they told me to come pick you up after school and take you over to your friend's house. And they come claiming to be from me or from your father, but they're not really from your father. And the way that you're going to know is that... Th- If we ever were to do that, if we ever were to send somebody to pick you up, we're going to give you a signal, right? We have a code word, whatever that code word may be. And here's the code word. So if someone ever comes to you and says, hey, come into the car, follow me, all your parents sent me, but they don't give you this code word, you are absolutely not to follow them because we did not send them and they're there to hurt you. And I think, friends, that is exactly what Jesus is saying here, that there is a signal Okay? And and we don't have to be deceived by false teachers who come and say, "Hey, follow me. I will take you. I will, I've been sent by God. God sent me to take care of you and to lead you to eternal life." But they don't come with the signal. They don't come with the code word. They don't come with the mark of really being from God. You are not to follow them. They are there to harm you. And what is the signal? Well, it's the truth of Jesus Christ. That's the signal. It's not, well, look, they're preaching morality. They're preaching good works, right? They're preaching against the prevailing ills of our day. That is not the signal. They're preaching about God, how we should love God and honor God. That is not the signal. They're preaching about Moses and his law. That is not the signal. Are they preaching the truth of Jesus Christ? Are they they professing his true and holy name? Are they proclaiming everything he stands for, which is, as we've talked so many times, right? What is Jesus all about? Well, he came into the world to give us light and truth, the light about God, the truth about God, to teach us about the perfect righteousness of God, amen? To to teach us that God is a God who requires righteousness as perfection right now, not later, not in eternity future but he requires righteousness for you to be acceptable before him perfection and none of us are that right we're all evil and none of us can be that through our own efforts and through our own works and so jesus came to give us the righteousness we could never achieve on our own through his own death and we receive that by grace through faith in his sacrifice if someone doesn't come with the truth of righteousness and the truth of grace and the truth of christ then you know, oh, that, they don't have the signal, the family signal. I'm not getting into their car. He's the door by which anyone who wants to lead the sheep must go through. And he's the door by which the sheep go through to receive pasture and eternal life. He is both the door and the shepherd. He comes, the interesting thing is, as a shepherd, Jesus himself comes through himself. He comes through the door. Augustine rightly pointed out that fact. Christ preaches Christ, for he preaches himself, and so the shepherd enters in by himself, didn't he? Jesus came to lead us, and he proclaims himself, doesn't he? And he proclaims the truth of God. So this is how Jesus is the door of the sheep. How is Jesus the good shepherd? Now look with me at verse 11 we have the fourth great I am statement of Jesus. He's telling us about himself as the son of God. He says here, I am the good shepherd. What does it mean that he's the good shepherd? Why does he put this predicate? Why does he put this adjective? Why does he put the word good with shepherd? Now in English, the word good carries different meanings, doesn't it? Sometimes the word good carries a mo- some moral connotations. He was a good man. That's what the, uh, the Jewish people said of Cornelius to Peter. He is a good man. Or the Bible says, overcome evil with good. Or God sends his reign upon the evil and the good. And so the, the word good here has moral connotations, Right? Have you ever told somebody, I am not a good person? As a Christian, I hope you have, <laughs> right? <laughs> you ever told yourself that when you looked in the mirror? <laughs> I'm not a good person. There is no one good but one who is God. that is God, right? But then sometimes the word good in English has non-moral connotations. Salt is good, Jesus said. Now when he said salt is good, does he mean salt is up, morally upright? That's not what he means. He just says salt is good is a really great thing for food. Serves a good purpose. He talks about the seed being cast upon good ground. It's good for growth. Or sometimes we might say, that's a really good soccer player, and I don't think we mean he's morally upright. We're just saying, when it comes to the game of soccer, he's a a great player, right? So in the Greek, there's different words also for the word good. There's the word agathos, and there's the word kalos, In the Greek, agathos carries a moral connotation, and the word kalos does not. In all of those examples I gave, overcome evil with good. He sends his rain on the good and the bad. That's the word agathos. Salt is good. Salt is kalos. The seed falls on the good ground, kalos. And the word here that Jesus uses is, well, that the apostles translate, is kalos. I am the good shepherd. So the point that Jesus is making here is not I am the morally upright shepherd, and of course Jesus is the morally upright one, but his point here is I am the excellent shepherd. When you say he's a good soccer player, apply that here. He's a good shepherd. He is everything that a shepherd should be. He answers to the ideal of what a shepherd ought to be. He is the good shepherd in contrast, as we see, to hirelings. So these people are hired to shepherd the sheep. They're not good shepherds. They don't do a good job. They don't do what a shepherd is supposed to do. But Jesus is the good shepherd doing exactly what a shepherd ought to do. And that's comforting. Because what we learn here is that our God is a good shepherd. And this is a comforting thought to know that when God is your shepherd, he's everything a shepherd should be. He's not a hireling. He's not just got the title shepherd. Yeah, some people call me shepherd. And I sometimes do shepherd things. But when you think it, try to think in your mind what a good shepherd should do. If you were a sheep, if you were a little sheep, what do you want your shepherd to do to take care of you? Try to think what a good shepherd would be. Someone who really cares for you. Someone who fulfills all the things that need to get done for you. And that's what Jesus is saying he is. In verse 11, in the second part of verse 11, on to verse 15, Jesus shows us what in the deepest way makes him the best kind of shepherd. I am the good shepherd because I lay down my life for the sheep so his goodness as a shepherd is primarily chiefly and most deeply seen in the fact that he lays down his life for the sheep i am the good shepherd because i care for and therefore lay down my life for the sheep in contrast to these hirelings he says who really only care about money why are they out there in the field why are they taking care of the sheep because they're getting paid And so when a wolf comes along, or when some danger or some risk comes along, they're out of there because they don't really care. In contrast, the good shepherd knows his sheep. He actually cares about them because he says here he knows them. And look at verse 3 again. He even knows them by name. He's able to look at each sheep and not say, I think you're one of mine. But he's able to call them by name. (laughs) Fluffy. Stupid, you know, <laughs> woolly. Uh, he knows them by name. And so he cares for them intimately. And so when danger comes, he doesn't shy back, but he puts himself into harm's way. This is what makes him the good shepherd. David in the Old Testament is an example of a good shepherd, isn't he? And David is a type of Christ. As as a good shepherd in the Old Testament, what happened when a lion or a bear came to gobble up his family's sheep? Did David hightail it and run? No, he actually said, I I went and took the bear by his beard, right? (laughs) I grabbed the lion by his scruff, and I rescued the sheep out of his hand. Now, he's putting his life on the line, but he does it because he cares for the sheep. So there's an example of a good shepherd and, therefore, a picture of Jesus himself. It it wasn't usual for shepherds to actually die for their sheep. To put themselves in harm's way, yes. To die, no. I don't think anyone would fault them for, for not, you know, dying in the line of duty and perfect, protecting the sheep. I think Jesus here is extending the metaphor beyond its natural limit, and he's speaking literally about his own love for his people and for his death for sinners. So as a good shepherd does risk his life for the sheep and doesn't run, I am the good shepherd who actually lays down my life for the sheep. Now let's think about this for a moment, brothers and sisters. Please think with me about his laying his life down for his sheep. It's true that hirelings, in this analogy, in this metaphor correspond to the leaders in Israel who don't care about the people and that's evident, evident by the, by their dereliction of duty in the last chapter regarding the man who was born blind they didn't love this man they didn't care about this man they didn't care about the truth and so they didn't really care about the people they were supposed to be taking care of and so we see them as hirelings in the last chapter but on the other hand We also need to recognize when we think about this text that the true nature of the danger that the sheep are in, according to Jesus, far exceeds anything that any human leader or human shepherd could have handled or could have managed or could have protected the sheep from. Let me say that again. In Jesus' mind, the nature of the danger that the sheep are in exceeds anything that any pharisee or human leader could have really taken care of or could have they couldn't have really done anything to help these sheep so yeah the pharisees didn't really care about the sheep but the true nature of the danger that they were in required jesus laying down his life for the sheep so it exceeded anything any human being could do because what was threatening the sheep or what is threatening people If all that was threatening the sheep was a bear or a lion or even a false prophet or a false messiah or a false leader, if that was the only thing that really threatened this world and people, then all we need is a a brave David. And any human being like David could have done that if they really cared for the sheep. Oh, look, some physical danger. Well, come on, brave David, step in and protect people, right? Right? or if all there was was false prophets and false messiahs, if that's the real danger, then all you need is a firm, caring elder or pastor to take care of you, to say, you know, don't go down that road, let me warn you about this guy, let me refute this error, this heretic. But, but friends, what we know and what was in Jesus' mind as he was thinking about his death for the sheep and what we understand from the, the Bible in its entirety is that what is actually threatening the sheep with destruction is nothing less than the justice of almighty god amen the justice of almighty god is threatening people <clears throat> true the glory of jesus's goodness in laying down his life to save the sheep uh, excuse me the the glory of jesus's goodness is in laying down his life to save the sheep, according to the text, isn't it? That's what he's saying. He said, I'm the good shepherd and the glory of my being the good shepherd is in that I lay down my life for the sheep and I did not lay down my life for the sheep in order to save them from ferocious animals or even political tyrants or what our Mormon friends might call unrighteous dominion. Have you ever heard this phrase? When human beings oppress other people, unrighteous dominion. No, the good shepherd didn't lay down his life to save them from that. The good shepherd laid down his life, we know, to save them from something far more serious, to save us from something far more serious, the wrath and the justice of Almighty God. And in other words, Jesus laid down his life to save us from righteous dominion. True? We're not being oppressed by a tyrant. There is a God in heaven who's righteous, who rules over all. And the scripture repeatedly underscores the fact that all we like sheep have what stayed close to our shepherd all we like sheep have not gone astray all we like sheep have pleased our master all we like sheep the bible tells us have gone astray and we've all turned to our own way what does this mean we've left the path of righteousness we've left the fold of perfect love to God and man we've left our duty and what we've left what God wanted us to do in Psalm 14 and 53 David says that God looks down from heaven upon all the children of men his eyes roam to and fro and he's he's looking to see if anybody actually cares about him if there's anyone who has a heart that fears him if there's anyone who has a mind that seeks him and that understands. And you know what he says in conclusion? Now some people in this world say, well, maybe a lot of people don't. But the scripture says, they have all become foul. That is, what, you know what something is foul? Think of something in your, in your life that you don't like to touch and you don't like to smell and you don't like to be around because it's a a disgusting thing to you and it's foul. That's what everybody has become to God. There is no one who does righteous. Not even one. And do you think there's no cost for departing from the path of righteousness and going astray from, from God? Do you think that human beings can become foul and do what God doesn't want us to do and there is no cost? And the Bible teaches us, brothers and sisters and friends, that the wages of sin that come from departing from God's way is more sure and certain to come our way than any check you could ever work for. And the wages of sin are death, is death. Eternal condemnation and separation from God in his disgust, he gives you your wages, which is removal from life. And that's what we deserve. I'd like to declare on the authority of the Bible this morning that you and I are sinners. I know you probably believe that if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, maybe that's new for you. But it's good to hear it again, isn't it? On the authority of the Bible, I declare again, you and I are sinners And our sinfulness is so profound, we don't even understand how bad we are. True? How many of you grasp how foul you are to God? Um, We are foul to him, and the retribution for our sin is eternity in hell, and the ransom for our life is the blood of the Son of God. Our sinfulness is more profound than we can even understand. And friends, this is what it means to be lost. To be a lost person is not just to not know your way. It's not just to be in a situation where I don't really know where to go from here. If someone would just come along and tell me where to go from here, I'd be fine. I could make my way home. Now, I agree we do need someone to come and tell us where to go from here. But if someone came and shed light on us and there was no Christ and no grace and no salvation through him, they'd say, uh, here's the reality of things and there's no way home. To be lost means you've crossed the line into a realm where none of your own resources can help you. People like to live in darkness because they can feel like they're not lost. My resources can still help me, I can still make it home someday. I'm working on it. But the light comes and says, You are so utterly lost. Just look at where you are. And you can't make it home in fact you don't even deserve to go home you deserve to stay out there in that lost position and God without the slightest apology should hurl you into destruction but the wonder of the gospel is that it's precisely right here it's precisely then and not before we had irreversibly ruined ourselves, but after we had irreversibly ruined ourselves, that God the Good Shepherd comes looking for us to bring us home. Isn't that awesome? We had completely ruined ourselves, and we deserve to be lost. And precisely then, Jesus left heaven to look for that lost sheep and to put it on his shoulders and to carry it home. And I'd like to suggest that when Jesus puts you upon his shoulders, what he does is that he puts your entire, from beginning to end, A to Z, birth to death, your whole life that you live as the old man. And he puts you upon himself and all of your sins. And he unites himself to you in a substitutionary way. And he dies, and as, not only does he die... Uh, He died on the cross for you. And on the cross, he was carrying you. He was bearing you there and paying the penalty for all your sins. On the cross, he was carrying you home. I mean, is it something else? Does he carry you home any other way? He puts you on his shoulders. He removes your old self. He removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. He says, I'll take that sheep's wages into myself so that that sheep will never have to. And he carries you through death into his resurrection, into his life, into his everlasting righteousness that has no stain and nor can be threatened by any stain. And he brings you into his sonship and he seats you at the right hand of the Father in a perfect relationship with the Father, in blessedness and in righteousness and in perfection, not because of anything you've done, but all because of His work on your behalf. That's where He carries you when He carries you home. He carries you to God. So, it's a wondrous message and it's a wondrous, wondrous Savior. And I'd like you just to personalize that this morning because Jesus clearly wants us to personalize it. He says, I know my sheep, and then my sheep know me. I call them by name. I came into the world to save them. I put you on my shoulder, and I bore your sins, and I brought you home, and you didn't deserve it. Why did I do that? Because I'm the good shepherd who cares for you, and I love you, and I love you personally, and I did that for you. Mohammed doesn't care for you. Joseph Smith doesn't care for you siddhartha Gautama doesn't care for you only jesus cares for you he's the only one who has and who would do something like that for you my friends true would muhammad do something like that for you even if he could no he couldn't though but he wouldn't jesus and jesus alone is the good shepherd this is the gospel and the good news this is the truth concerning God, concerning our sin, concerning our salvation, that all who are of God, when they hear it, they believe it. I recognize God's voice. And when they don't hear this message in another person, they don't hear it, and they will not follow a stranger. They believe the truth, and by believing, they have this abundant life that Jesus came to give them. In verse 16, Jesus says that he has other sheep who are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So he's on a mission. He's gathering together his sheep. He's creating one flock and he will be the shepherd. And um, what he means here by other sheep I have that are not of this fold is simply there are people that don't belong to the nation of Israel. The Gentiles abroad, I'm going to go and gather them as well into the fold and they will hear and there will be one flock and one shepherd of Jews and Gentiles who believe in me and who know me. So, what does it mean that Jesus is the good shepherd? Well, you and I are weak, we're helpless, we're utterly dependent, and we're lost. We can't do this on our own. We can't get back by our own resources. But Jesus loves you, and he cares for you, and he came to seek you, and he found you, and he died for you and he leads you, and he brings you home because he loves you. So no wonder the Christians put that on their tombstones, and no wonder that was such a major theme of Christian art. The Good Shepherd is truly a beautiful and comforting thought for us. And I'd just like to close this morning with a thought on God the Father. God the Father. Jesus speaks about him in verse 17 and 18. If you just look with me there as we close. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. So the Father loves the Son. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I've received from my Father. So everyone should know that when it comes to the beautiful message of the gospel, we're not simply dealing with a father who's full of wrath and a Jesus who's full of compassion. There's a bad cop and there's a good cop and the, and the, you know, the bad cop wants to kill us and destroy us and the good cop wants to come and save us and Jesus comes and saves us from the mean father. But here we see very clearly that... The mystery of God the Father is that he loves the world so much that he gave us his son to save us from himself. That's the mystery. The Father loves you and sent his son to save you from his own righteous dominion. And Jesus has authority to lay down his life for us and to take his life life again only because of the command of the Father, right? That's what this passage says. Why did Jesus come and lay his life and take it up again? Because he's a being obedient to his Father. And furthermore, the Father loves him because he does that. And so we see here, both by this commandment and by the love of the Father, that the Good Shepherd is not independent of the Father, but it, the Good Shepherd precisely shows us who the Father really is. You see that in this passage? The Good Shepherd is not operating independent of the Father. It is the Good Shepherd that shows us the supreme revelation of the Father. By knowing the Good Shepherd, we know the Father. What is Jesus like? He's a Good Shepherd. What is the Father like? Well, He cares for me, He knows my name. Even though I went astray, he loved me. Even though I should have perished under his righteous dominion, he gave his son for me, who laid his life down for me. The father put me on his shoulder, and the father brought me out of the dunghill, and he brought me to himself, right into the throne room, put me on his knee. He's the good shepherd. And so we have as Christians the unspeakable blessing of knowing the Father as the good shepherd, like no other person can because they don't know Jesus, right? We have the unspeakable pleasure of resting in the Lord who is our shepherd, and of knowing him through Jesus Christ as our shepherd, and and we have the ability to rest in him as our shepherd as well. So as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, friends, I'd like to encourage us to take these words of jesus that we read to heart okay look through my words i'm just trying to say look at this you see what he said how amazing this is as we take the lord's supper let's take this to heart that we are sheep totally dependent helpless and the and that god is the good shepherd and i'd like to remind us here that the supper is a proclamation of the death of christ We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, the Lord's Supper is the voice of God proclaiming to us, I love you, I died for you, believe in me, I came for you when you were lost, I put you on my shoulders when you were lost, and I bled for you, and I cleaned you, and I brought you home. The Lord's Supper declares he's the good shepherd. Let's remember that together. Let's hear his voice again together. Let's rest in his wonderful care for us together as we take the bread and the wine. Please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the reminder of who we are and who you are. It can be easy to forget that we are sheep it can be easy to forget that we are helpless. Um, it can be easy, too, to forget, Lord, that we deserve to perish. But I pray, Lord, that uh, through the preaching of your word, that you take these words and you'd help us uh, today to remember the truth. And as we take the, the, the Lord's Supper this morning, Lord, as, let, us, let us feel like sheep who just absolutely love our shepherd and all that he is for us and all that he does for us, all that you are for us, Lord, and all you have done. And help us to feel how intimate you are with us and how much you have loved us and lavished care upon us as we remember what you did. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.